0: Welcome back to History Plus True Crime Uncovered, a new podcast series all about historical stories, people, and places. Just a disclaimer for today because uh, it does talk about aspects of people dying in a huge disaster. Some content in this episode may be sensitive to some listeners. Discretion is advised for those under the age of 13. I am your host, Jamie Peters. This is the most requested topic or episode, and I am so excited to finally share it. I have researched and been so interested in this particular part of history. This episode must be done in a series due to so much information to discuss. So let's start with part one. This is Titanic, the unsinkable ship of dreams. Part 1 of a series. The RMS Titanic was a British passenger and mail carrying ocean liner operated by the White Star Line that sank in the North Atlantic Ocean on April 15, 1912, as a result of striking an iceberg during her maiden voyage from Southampton, England to New York City. In the United States. Of the estimated 2,224 passengers and crew aboard, about 1,500 of those died, making it the deadliest sinking of a single ship up to that time. The disaster drew public attention, spurred major changes in maritime safety regulations, and inspired many artistic works. The Titanic was the largest ship afloat at the time she entered service and the second of three Olympic-class ocean liners built for the White Star Line. She was built by the Harland & Wolfe Shipbuilding Company in Belfast. Thomas Andrews Jr., the chief naval architect of the shipyard, died in the disaster. Titanic was under the command of Captain Edward John Smith, who went down with the ship. The ocean liner carried some of the wealthiest people in the world, as well as hundreds of immigrants from the British Isles, Scandinavia, and elsewhere throughout Europe, who were seeking a new life in the United States and Canada. The first-class accommodation was designed to be the pinnacle of comfort and luxury with a gymnasium, swimming pool, smoking rooms, high-class restaurants and cafes, a Turkish bath, and hundreds of opulent cabins. A high-powered radio telegraph transmitter was available for sending passenger markograms and for the ship's operational use. Titanic had advanced safety features such as watertight compartments and remotely activated watertight doors, contributing to its reputation as unsinkable. She was equipped with 16 lifeboat davits, each capable of lowering 3 lifeboats, for a total of 48 boats. Despite this capacity of 48, the ship was only equipped with a total of 20. Fourteen were regular lifeboats, two were cutter lifeboats, and four were collapsible and proved difficult to launch while she was sinking. Together, the 20 lifeboats could hold 1,178 people, about half the number of passengers on board and one-third of the number of passengers the ship could have carried at full capacity, a number consistent with the maritime safety regulations of the era. The British Board of Trade's regulations required 14 lifeboats per ship, 10,000 tons. Titanic carried six more than required, allowing 338 extra people room in lifeboats. When the ship sank, the lifeboats that had been lowered were only filled up to an average of 60%. That's sad. The name Titanic derives from the titans of Greek mythology. Built in Belfast, Ireland, in what was then the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, RMS Titanic was the second of three Olympic-class ocean liners, the lead vessel was the RMS Olympic, and the final ship in the class was the HMHS Britannic. They were by far the largest vessels of the British shipping company White Star Line's fleet, which comprised 29 steamers and tenders in 1912. The three ships had their genesis in a discussion in the mid-1907 between the White Star Line's chairman, J. Bruce Ismay, and the American financier, J.P. Morgan, who controlled the White Star Line's parent corporation, the International Mercantile Marine Company. White Star faced an increasing challenge from its main rivals, Cunard Line, which with the aid of the Royal Navy had recently launched the twin sister ships, the Lusitania and the Mauritania, the fastest passenger ships in their service, and the German lines Hamburger America and Norddeutscher Lloyd. Ismay preferred to compete on on size rather than speed and proposed to commission a new class of liners that would be larger than anything had ever been done before, as well as being the last word in comfort and luxury. White Star sought an upgrade of its fleet primarily to respond to the introduction of the Cunard Giants, but also... To considerably strengthen its position on the southampton cherbourg new york service that had been inaugurated inaugurated in 1907 the new ships would have suspic- sufficient speed to maintain a weekly service with only three ships instead of the original four thus the olympic and titanic would replace rms teutonic of 1889 RMS Majestic of 1890 as well as the RMS Adriatic of 1907. RMS Oceanic made her first departure from her new home port in June 1907. Her running mates on the Southampton, New York run were the Teutonic Majestic and the New Adriatic. The Majestic resumed her old position on the White Star Line's New York service after the loss of the Titanic. A little known fact. The ships were constructed by the Belfast shipbuilder Harland and Wolfe, which had a long-established relationship with the White Star Line dating back to 1867. Harland and Wolff were given a great deal of latitude in designing ships for the White Star Line. The usual approach was for Wilhelm Wolfe to sketch a general concept, which Edward James Harland would then turn into a ship design. Cost considerations were a relatively low priority. Harland and Wolfe were authorized to spend what it needed to on the ships, plus a 5% profit margin. In the case of the Olympic-class ships, a cost of £3 million, approximately £310 million in 2019, for the first two ships was agreed, plus, quote, extras to contract, end quote and the usual five percent fee. Harland and Wolfe put their leading designers to work designing Olympic class vessels. The design was overseen by Lord Peary, a director of both Harland and Wolfe and the White Star Line, naval architect Thomas Andrews, the managing director of Harland and Wolf's design department, Edward Wilding, Andrews deputy and responsible for calculating the ship's design stability and trim, and Alexander Carlyle, the shipyard's chief draughtsman and general manager. Carlyle's responsibilities included the decorations, equipment, and all general arrangements, including the implementation of an efficient lifeboat davit design. On July 29, 1908, Harland and Wolfe presented the drawings to J. Bruce Ismay and other White Star Line exec- executives. Ismay approved the design and signed three letters of agreement two days later authorizing the start of the construction. At this point, the first ship, which would later become Olympic, had no name but was referred to simply as Number 400, as it was Harland and Wolfe's 400th hull. Titanic was based on a revised version of the same design and was given the number 401. The dimensions and the layouts of the Titanic are very interesting for the time period. Titanic was 882 feet 9 inches long with a maximum breadth of 92 feet 6 inches. Her total height measured from the base of the keel to the top of the bridge which was 104 feet. She measured 46,329 GRT and 21,831 NRT, and with the drought of 34 feet 7 inches, she displaced 52,310 tons. All three of the Olympic-class ships had ten decks, excluding the top of the officers' quarters, eight of which were for passenger passenger use. From top to bottom, the decks were the boat deck, on which the lifeboats were housed. It was from here during the early hours of April 15, 1912, that Titanic's lifeboats were lowered into the North Atlantic. The bridge and wheelhouse were at the forward end, in front of the captain's and officer's quarters. The bridge stood eight feet above the deck, extending out to either side so that the ship could be controlled while docking. The wheelhouse stood within the bridge. The entrance to the First Class Grand Staircase and Gymnasium were located midships along with the raised roof of the First Class Lounge. While at the rear of the deck were the roof of the first-class smoking room and the relatively modest second-class entrance. Just forward of the second-class entrance sat the kennels where the first-class passengers' dogs would stay. The wood-covered deck was divided into four segregated promenades for officers, first-class passengers, engineers, and second-class passengers, respectively. Lifeboats line the side of the deck, except in the first-class area where there was a gap so that the view would not be spoiled. Next is A-Deck, also called the Promenade Deck, extended along the entire 546 feet length of the superstructure. It was reserved exclusively for first-class passengers and contained first-class cabins, the first-class reading and writing room, lounge, smoking room, and palm court. Then B deck was the bridge deck, which was the top weight-bearing deck and the uppermost level of the hull. More first-class passenger accommodations were located here with six palatial staterooms or cabins featuring their own private promenades. On, t- on Titanic, the a la carte restaurant and the Café Parisienne provided luxury dining facilities to first-class passengers both were run by subcontracted chefs and their staff all were lost in the disaster the second class smoking room and entrance hall were both located on this deck the raised forecastle of the ship was forward of the bridge deck accommodating number one hatch the main hatch through which the cargo holds numerous pieces of machinery and the anchor housings Aft of the bridge deck was the raised poop deck, 106 feet long, used as a promenade by third-class passengers. It was where many of Titanic's passengers and crew made their last stand as the ship sank. Yes, there were people still left on the ship as it sank. The forecastle and poop deck were separated from the bridge deck by well decks. Next, the sea deck, or the shelter deck. Deck, as it's known, was the highest deck to run in, uninterrupted from stern to stern. It included both wall decks. The aft one served as part of the third class promenade. Crew cabins were housed below the forecastle, and third class public rooms were housed below the poop deck. In between were the majority of first class cabins and the second class library. D deck, or As it was known, the saloon deck was dominated by three large public rooms. The first class reception room, the first class dining saloon, and the second class dining saloon. The first and second class galleys were also located on this deck. An open space was provided for third class passengers. First, second, and third class passengers had cabins on this deck, with berths for firemen located in the bow. It was the highest level reached by the ship's watertight bulkheads, though only 8 of the 15 bulkheads. Also, as I'm going through the different aspects of the ship, you just have to know that this was a humongous ship. Just huge, even for the time period. Next is E-Deck, or the Upper Deck, which was pronounced... Predominantly used for the passenger accommodation for all three classes, plus berths for cooks, seamen, stewards, and trimmers. Along this length, its length ran a long passageway nicknamed the Scotland Road in reference to a famous street in Liverpool. Scotland Road was used by third class passengers and crew members f deck or the middle deck was the last complete deck and mainly accommodated second and class third excuse me accommodated second and third class passengers and several departments of the crew the third class dining saloon was located there as was the first class bath complex containing the swimming pool and the turkish bath g deck which is the lower deck, was the lowest complete deck that carried passengers and had the lowest portholes just above the waterline. The first class squash court was located here, along with the traveling post office where letters and parcels were sword- sorted ready for delivery when the ship docked. Food was also stored here. The deck was interrupted at several points by Orlop partial decks over the boiler, engine, and turbine rooms. The Orlop decks and the tan top below that were on the lowest level of the ship below the waterline. The Orlop decks were used as cargo spaces, while the tank top, the inner bottom of the ship's hull, provided the platform on which the ship's boilers, engines, and turbines, plus electrical generators were housed. This area of the ship was occupied by the engine and boiler rooms, areas which passengers would have been prohibited from seeing. They were connected with higher levels of the ship by two flights of stairs in the Fireman's Passage. Twin spiral stairways near the bow provided access to D-deck. Ladders in the boiler, turbine, and engine rooms provided access to higher decks in those compartments. Now moving along to the features of the ship. Titanic propulsion was supplied by three main engines, two reciprocating four-cylinder triple-expansion steam engines and one centrally placed low-pressure Parsons turbine, each driving a propeller. The two reciprocating engines had a combined output of 30,000 horsepower. The output of the steam turbine was 16,000 horsepower. The White Star Line had used the same combination of engines on an earlier liner, the Loretic, which... It had been such a great success. it provided a good combination of performance and speed reciprocating engines by themselves were not powerful enough to propel an Olympic class liner at the desired speeds while turbines were su- sufficiently powerful but cause uncomfortable vibrations a problem that affected the all turbine all turbine Cunard liners Lusitania and Mauritania by combining reciprocating engines with a turbine fuel usage could be reduced and motive power increased while using the same amount of steam the two reciprocating engines were each 63 feet long and weighed 720 tons with their bed plates contributing a further 195 tons They were powered by steam, produced in 29 boilers, 24 of which were double-ended and five single-ended, which contained a total of 159 furnaces. The boilers were 15 feet 9 inches in diameter and 20 feet long, each weighing 91.5 tons and capable of holding 48.5 tons of water. They were fueled by burning coal, 6,611 tons, of which would be carried in Titanic's bunkers with a further 1,092 tons and hold three. The furnaces required over 600 tons of coal a day to be shoveled into them by hand, requiring the services of 176 firemen working around the clock. Could you imagine? No sleep. 100 tons of ash a day had to be disposed of by ejecting it into the sea the work was relentless dirty and dangerous and although firemen were paid relatively well there was a high suicide rate among those who worked in that capacity Exhaust steam leaving the reciprocating engines was fed into the turbine, which was situated aft. From there, it passed into a surface condenser to increase the efficiency of the turbine and so that the steam could be condensed back into the water re- and reused. The engines were attached directly to long shafts which drove the propellers. There were three, one for each engine, the outer wing. Uh, propellers were the largest, each carrying three blades of manganese bronze alloy with a total diameter of 23.5 feet. The middle propeller was slightly smaller at 17 feet in diameter and could be stopped, but not reversed. Titanic's electrical plant was capable of producing more power than an average city power station of the time. Immediately aft of the turbine engine were four 400 kilowatt steam driven electric generators used to provide electrical power to the ship, plus two 30 kilowatt auxiliary generators for emergency use. Their location in the stern of the ship meant they remained operational until the last few minutes before the ship sank. Titanic lacked a searchlight, in accordance with the ban on the use of searchlights in the merchant navy. The Compartments and Funnels The interiors of the Olympic-class ships were subdivided into 16 primary compartments, divided by 15 bulkheads that extended above the waterline. The 11 vertically closing watertight doors on the Orlop deck could be closed and automatically via a switch on the bridge by a lever next to the door itself or by an automatic buoyancy mechanism that would activate in the event water reached six feet high in the compartment. There were also several other horizontally closing watertight doors along Scotland Road and various crew and third-class passenger spaces on the G, F, and E decks. These doors required a small key to be placed into a slot on the deck above. Once the key was turned, the watertight door would close. The ship's exposed decking was made of pine and teak, while interior ceilings were covered in painted granulated cork to combat condensation. Standing above the decks were four funnels, each painted in the white star buff with black tops. Only three were actually functional, a little known fact most people don't know. Yes, it had four, but only three worked. The aftmost was a dummy installed for aesthetic purposes and providing ventilation to the kitchen as well as the first class 1st and 2nd class smoking rooms. Two masts, each 155 feet high, supported derricks for working cargo. The rudder and steering engines. Due to the size of the weight of Titanic's rudder at 78 feet 8 inches high and 15 feet 3 inches long, weighing over 100 tons, that is required steering engines to move it. Two steam-powered steering engines were installed, though only one was used at any one time, with the other one kept in reserve. They were connected to the short tiller through stiff springs to isolate the steering engines from any shocks in heavy seas or during the fast changes of direction. As a last resort, the tiller could be moved by ropes connected to two steam capstans. The capstans were also used to raise and lower the ship's five anchors one port, one starboard, one in the central line, and two hedging anchors the water ventilation and heating the ship was equipped with her own waterworks capable of heating and pumping water to all parts of the vessel via a complex network of pipes and valves the main water supply was taken aboard while titanic was in port but in an emergency the ship could also distill fresh water from seawater though this was not a straightforward process as the distillation plant quickly became clogged by salt deposits. A network of insulated ducts conveyed warm air driven by electric fans around the ship and first class cabins were fitted with additional electric heaters. Communication. Titanic's radio telegraph equipment, then known as wireless tele- Telography was leased to the White Star Line by the Marconi International Marine Communication Company, which also supplied two of its employees, Jack Phillips and Harold Bride, as operators. The service maintained a 24-hour schedule, primarily sending and receiving passenger telegrams, but also handling navigation messages, including weather reports and ice warnings. The radio room was located on the boat deck in the officer's quarters. A soundproofed silent room next to the operating room housed loud equipment including the transmitter and a motor generator used for producing alternating currents the operator's living quarters were adjacent to the working office the ship was equipped with the -the state-of-the-art five kilowatt rotary spark gap transmitter with the wireless telegraph call sign mgy and communication was in morse code this transmitter was One of the first Marconi installations to use a rotary spark gap, which gave Titanic a distinctive musical tone that could be readily distinguished from other signals. The transmitter was one of the most powerful in the world and guaranteed to broadcast over a radius of 350 miles. An elevated T antenna that spanned the length of the ship was used for transmitting and receiving. The normal operating frequency was 500 kilowatts or 600 meters wavelength. However, the equipment could also operate on the short wavelength of 1,000 kilowatts or 300 meters wavelength. That was employed by smaller vessels with shorter antennas. Passenger facilities. The passenger facilities aboard Titanic aim to meet the highest standards of luxury. According to Titanic's general arrangement plans, the ship could accommodate 833 first-class passengers, 614 in second class, and 1,006 in third class for a total passenger capacity of 2,453. In addition to her capacity, for crew members exceeding 900, as most documents of her original configuration have stated that her full carrying capacity for both passengers and crew was approximately 3,547. Her interior design was a departure from that of other passenger liners, which had typically been decorated in the rather heavy style of a manor house or an English country house. Titanic was laid out in a much lighter style, similar to that of contemporary high-class hotels like the Ritz, was a reference point, with first-class cabins finished in the Empire style, a variety of other decorative styles ranging from the Renaissance to Louis VI, were used to decorate cabins and public rooms in the first and second class areas of the ship. The aim was to convey an impression that passengers were in a floating hotel rather than a ship. As one passenger recalled, on entering the ship's interior, a passenger would, quote, at once lose the feeling that they were on board a ship and seem instead to be entering the hall of some great house on shore, end quote. Cabins in first class also contained buttons that, when pressed, would signal for a steward to come to the cabin. Among the more novel features available to first-class passengers was a seven-foot-deep saltwater swimming pool, a gymnasium, a squash court, and a Turkish bath, with which comprised electric bath, steam room, cool room, massage room, and hot room. First-class common rooms were impressive in scope and lavishly decorated. They included a lounge in the style of the Palace of Versailles, an enormous reception room, a men's smoking room, and a reading and writing room. There was an a la carte restaurant in the style of the Ritz Hotel, which was run as a concession by the famous Italian restaurateur, Gaspare Gotti, a cafe Paris. Parisienne, decorated in the style of a French sidewalk cafe, complete with ivy covered trellises and worker furniture, was run as an annex to the restaurant. For an extra cost, first class passengers conjo- could enjoy the finest French hoot cuisine in the most luxurious of surroundings. There was also a veranda cafe where tea and light refreshments were, su- were served that offered grand views of the ocean. At 114 feet long by 92 feet wide, the dining saloon on D-Deck, designed by Charles Fitzroy Dahl, was the largest room afloat and could seat almost 600 passengers at a time. Third class, commonly referred to as steerage, accommodations aboard Titanic were not as luxurious as the first and second class, but were better than on many other ships of the time, they reflected the improved standards with which the White Star Line had adopted for transatlantic immigration and lower-class travel. On most other North Atlantic passenger ships at the time, third-class accommodations consisted of little more than open dormitories in the forward end of vessels, in which hundreds of people were confined, often without adequate food or toilet facilities. The White Star Line had long since broken that mold. As seen aboard Titanic, all White Star Line passenger ships divided their third-class accommodations into two sections, always at opposite ends of the vessel from one from one another. The established arrangement was that single men were quartered in the forward areas, while single women, married couples, and families were quartered aft. In addition, while other ships provided only open berth sleeping arrangements, White Star Line vessels provided their third-class passengers with private, small, but comfortable cabins capable of accommodating 2, 4, 6, 8, and 10 passengers. Third class accommodations also included their own dining rooms, as well as public gathering areas, including adequate open deck space, which aboard Titanic comprised the poop deck at the stern, the forward and aft well decks, and a large open space on D deck, which could be used as a social hall. This was supplemented by the addition of a smoking room for men and a general room on CDAC, which women could use for reading and writing. Although they were not as glamorous in design as spaces seen in upper-class accommodations, they were still far above average for the period. Leisure facilities were provided for all three classes to pass the time. As well as making use of the indoor amenities such as the library, smoking rooms, and gymnasium. It was also customary for passengers to socialize on the open deck, promenading or relaxing in hired deck chairs or wooden benches. A passenger list was published before the sailing to inform the public which members of the great and good who were on board, and it was not uncommon for ambitious mothers to use the list to identify rich bachelors to whom they could introduce their marriageable daughters to during the voyage. One of Titanic's most distinctive features was her first-class staircase, known as the Grand Staircase or Grand Stairway. Built of solid English oak with a sweeping curve, the staircase descended through seven decks of the ship, between the boat deck to E deck, before terminating in a simplified single flight on F deck. It was capped with a dome of wrought iron and glass that admitted natural light to the stairwell. Each landing off the staircase gave access to the ornate entrance halls paneled in the William and Mary style and lit by armulo and crystal light fixtures. At the uppermost landing was a large carved wooden panel containing a clock with figures of honor and glory crowning time flanking the clock face. The grand staircase was destroyed during the sinking and is now just a void in the ship which modern explorers have used to access the lower decks. During the filming of James Cameron's Titanic in 1997, his replica of the Grand Staircase was ripped from its foundations by the force of the inrushing water on the set. It has been suggested that during the real event, the entire Grand Staircase was ejected upwards through the dome. Mail and Cargo Although Titanic was primarily a passenger liner, she also carried a substantial amount of cargo. Her designation as a Royal Mail Ship RMS indicated that she carried mail under contract with the Royal Mail and also for the United States Post Office Department. For the storage of letters, parcels, and specie, Bullion, coins, and other valuables, 26,800 cubic feet of space in her holds was allocated. The C post office on G deck was manned by five postal clerks, three Americans, and two Britons, who worked 13 hours a day, seven days a week, sorting up to 60,000 items daily. The ship's passengers brought with them a huge amount of baggage. Another 19,455 cubic feet was taken up by first and second class baggage. In addition, there was a considerable quantity of regular cargo ranging from furniture to foodstuffs and a 1912 Renault Type CE Coupe de Ville motor car. Despite later myths, the cargo on Titanic's maiden voyage was fairly mundane. There was no gold, exotic minerals, or diamonds. And one of the more famous items lost in the shipwreck, a jeweled copy of the Ryabat of Omar Khayyam, was valued at only 405 pounds or 42,700 pounds today. According to the claims for compensation filed with Commissioner Gilchrist following the conclusion of the Senate inquiry, the single most highly valued item of luggage or cargo was a large neoclassical oil oil painting entitled, um, now excuse my, my French, La Curacine Aubine, I believe, by French artist Mary Joseph Blondel. The painting's owner, first class passenger, Moritz Hakan-Bajorström-Stefan, okay, I probably butchered that. I'm sorry, <laughs> really hard to pronounce name, filed a claim for 100000 equivalent to 2200000 in 2022 in compensation for the loss of the artwork. Other intriguing items in the manifest included 12 cases of ostrich feathers, 76 cases of dragon's blood, and 16 cases of calabashes. Titanic was equipped with eight electric cranes, four electric winches, and three steam winches to lift cargo and baggage in and out of the holds. It is estimated that the ship used some 415 tons of coal whilst in Southampton, simply generating steam to operate the cargo winches and provide heat and light. Lifeboats Like Olympic, Titanic carried a total of 20 lifeboats, 14 standard wooden hardland and wolf lifeboats with a capacity of 65 people each and four Englehard collapsible wooden bottom collapsible canvas sides lifeboats identified as A to D with a capacity of 47 people each. In addition, she had two emergency cutters with a capacity of 40 people each. Olympic carried at least two collapsible boats on either side of her number one funnel. All of the lifeboats were stowed securely on the boat deck, and except for collapsible lifeboats A and B connected to davits by ropes. Those on the starboard side were odd-numbered, 1 through 15 from bow to stern, while those on the port side were even numbered 2 to 16 from bow to stern. Both cutters were kept and swung out hanging from the davits, ready for immediate use, while collapsible lifeboats C and D were stowed on the boat deck connected to davits, immediately inboard of boats 1 and 2, respectively. A and B were stored on the roof of the officer's quarters on either side of number 1 funnel. There were no davits to lower them, and their weight would make them difficult to launch by hand. Each boat carried, among other things, food, water, blankets, and a spare lifebelt. Lifeline ropes on the boat's sides enabled them to save additional people from the water, if necessary. Titanic had 16 sets of davits, each able to handle four lifeboats as Carlisle had planned. This gave Titanic the ability to carry up to 64 wooden lifeboats, which would have been enough for 4,000 people, considerably more than her actual capacity. However... The White Star Line decided that only 16 wooden lifeboats and four collapsibles would be carried, which could accommodate 1,178 people, only one-third of Titanic's total capacity. At the time, the Board of Trade's regulations required British vessels over 10,000 tons to only carry 16 lifeboats with a capacity of 990 occupants. Therefore, the White Star Line actually provided more lifeboat accommodation than what was legally required. At the time, lifeboats were intended to ferry survivors from a sinking ship to a rescuing ship, not keep afloat the whole population or power them to shore. Had SS Californian responded to Titanic's distress calls, the lifeboats might have been able to ferry all passengers to safety safety as previously planned. The building and preparing of the ship, construction, launch, and fitting out. The sheer size of the Olympic-class vessels posed a major engineering challenge for Harland and Wolfe. No shipbuilder had ever before attempted to construct vessels of this size. The ships were constructed on Queens Island, now known as the Titanic Quarter, in Belfast Harbor. Harland and Wolfe had to demolish three existing slipways and build two new ones, the largest ever constructed up to that time, to accommodate both ships. Their construction was facilitated by an enormous gantry built by Sir William Arrol and Company, a Scottish firm responsible for the building of the Fourth Bridge and London's Tower Bridge. The Arrol gantry stood 228 feet high was 270 feet wide and 840 feet long and weighed more than 6,000 tons. It accommodated a number of mobile cranes. A separate floating crane, capable of lifting 200 tons, was brought in from Germany. The construction of Olympic and Titanic took place virtually in parallel, with Olympic's keel laid down first on December 16, 1908 and Titanic's March 31, 1909. Both ships took about 26 months to build and followed much the same construction process. They were designed essentially as an enormous floating box girder with the keel acting as a backbone and the frames of the hull forming the ribs. At the base of the ships, a double bottom 5 feet 3 inches deep supported 300 frames, each between 24 inches and 36 inches apart and measuring up to 66 feet long. They terminated at the bridge deck, B deck, and were covered with steel plates which formed the outer skin of the ships. The 2,000-hole plates were single pieces of rolled steel plate, mostly up to 6 feet wide and 30 feet long, and weighed between 2.5 and and 3 tons. Their thickness varied from 1 inch to 1.5 inches. The plates were laid in a clinkered, overlapping fashion from the keel to the bilge, above the point that they were laid in the in-and-out fashion where strake plating was applied to in-bands the in strikes, with the gaps covered by the out strikes overlapping on the edges. Commercial oxy-fuel and electric arc welding methods, ubiquitous in fabrication today, were still in their infancy. Like most other iron and steel structures of the area era, era The hull was held together with over 3 million iron and steel rivets, with which by themselves weighed over 1,200 tons. They were fitted using hydraulic machines or were hammered in by hand. In the 1990s, some material scientists concluded that the steel plate used for the ship was subject to being especially brittle when cold, and that this brittleness exasperated the impact damage and hastened the sinking. It is believed by the standards of the time, the steel plate's quality was good, not faulty, but that it was inferior to what would be used for shipbuilding purposes in later decades, owing to advances in the meteorology of still making. As for the rivets, considerable emphasis has also been placed on their quality and strength. Among the last items to be fitted on Titanic before the ship's launch were her two side anchors and one center anchor. The anchors themselves were a challenge to make, with the center anchor being the largest ever forged by hand and weighing nearly 16 tons. Twenty Clydesdale Drought horses were needed to haul the center anchor by wagon from the Noah Hingley & Sons LTD Forge Shop in Netherland near Dudley. United Kingdom, to the Dudley Railway Station two miles away. From there, it was shipped by rail to Fleetwood in Lancashire before being loaded aboard a ship and sent to Belfast. The work of constructing the ships was difficult and dangerous. For the 15,000 men who worked at Harland and Wolfe at the time, safety precautions were rudimentary at best. A lot of work was carried out without equipment like hard hats or handguards on machinery. As a result, during Titanic's construction, 246 injuries were recorded, 28 of them severe, such as arms severed by machines or legs crushed under falling pieces of steel. Six people died on the ship herself while she was being constructed and fitted out, and another two died in the shipyard. Just before the launch, a worker was killed when a piece of wood fell on him also. Titanic was launched at 12.15 p.m. on May 31, 1911 in the presence of Lord Peary, J. Piermont Morgan, J. Bruce Ismay, and 100,000 onlookers. 22 tons of soap and tallow were spread on the slipway to lubricate the ship's passage into the River Lagan. In keeping with the White Star Line's traditional policy, the ship was not formally named or christened with champagne. The ship was towed to a fitting out berth where, over the cur- course of the next year, her engines, funnels, and superstructure were installed and her interior was fitted out. Although Titanic was virtually identical to the class's lead ship, Olympic, a few changes were made to distinguish both ships. The most notable Exterior difference was that the Titanic and the third vessel in class Britannic had a steel screen with sliding windows installed along the forward half of the A deck promenade. This was installed as a last minute change at the personal request of Bruce Ismay and was intended to provide additional shelter to first class passengers. Extensive changes were made to B deck on Titanic as the promenade space in this deck which had proven unpopular on Olympic, was converted into additional first-class cabins. Including two opulent parlor suites with their own private promenade spaces, the a la carte restaurant was also enlarged, and the Café Parisienne, an entirely new feature which did not exist on Olympic, was added. These changes made Titanic slightly heavier than her sister, and thus she could claim to be the largest ship afloat. The work took longer than expected due to design changes requested by Ismay and a temporary pause in work occasioned by the need to repair Olympic, which had been in a collision in September 1911. Had Titanic been finished earlier, she might have missed her collision with an iceberg. Titanic Sea Trials began at 6 a.m. on Tuesday, April 2, 1912, just two days after her fitting out was finished and eight days before she was due to leave Southampton on her maiden voyage. The trials were delayed for a day due to bad weather, but by Monday morning, it was clear and fair. Aboard were 78 stookers, Greasers, and Firemen and 41 members of crew. No domestic staff appeared to have been on board representatives of various companies traveled on titanic sea trials thomas andrews and edward wilding of harland and wolf and harold a sanderson of imm bruce ismay and lord perry were too ill to attend jack phillips and harold bride served as radio operators and performed fine-tuning of the marconi equipment francis carruthers a surveyor from the board of trade was also present to see that everything worked and that the ship was fit to carry passengers. The sea trials consisted of a number of tests of her handling characteristics carried out first in Belfast, Lough and then in the open waters of the Irish Sea. Over the course of about 12 hours, Titanic was driven at different speeds, her turning ability was tested, and a crash stop was performed in which engines were reversed full ahead to full astern bringing her to a stop in 850 yards or 3 minutes and 15 seconds. The ship covered a distance of about 80 nautical miles, averaging 18 knots and reaching a maximum speed of just under 21 knots. On returning to Belfast at about 7 p.m., the surveyor signed an agreement and account of voyages and crew valid for 12 months, which declared the ship seaworthy. An hour later, Titanic departed Belfast to head to Southampton, a voyage of about 570 nautical miles. After a journey lasting about 28 hours, she arrived about midnight on April 4th and was towed to the port's berth 44, ready for the arrival of her passengers and the remainder of her crew. And this concludes the first part of Titanic, The Unsinkable Ship of Dreams. Join me next episode for facts about her maiden voyage in April of 1912 as well as facts about her passengers that she carried, those who survived and those who did not, as well as the aftermath of after the Titanic sank. I will see you then. Thanks for joining me. As always, leave a review. Tell me um, how you're enjoying these episodes. And leave me comments. To, um, give me future requests. This is how, um, partially, <laughs> how I come up with future episodes as this one was highly requested. See you soon.